This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. Her name is Fiona Hill. This is her from November 21st, 2019, during President Donald Trump's impeachment hearing. Based on questions and statements I've heard, some of you on this committee appear to believe that Russia and its security services did not conduct a campaign against our country, and that perhaps, somehow, for some reason, Ukraine did. This is a fictional narrative that has been perpetrated and propagated by the Russian security services themselves. Dr. Hill has written a new book about her experience at the National Security Council, her experiences throughout her life, education, their funny moments, there are somber moments, and of course, reflections about that day on the Hill. The people that I was actually giving testimony to were tearing themselves apart and fighting with each other over exactly this fictional narratives, making stuff up, you know, for their own private, personal, political gain. Coming up on this episode of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. If you work in the U.S. national security space, you know the name Fiona Hill. She's long been one of the most intelligent, steady, and innovative individuals working there. She's worked for three presidents and is a specialist on Russia. She became famous, so to speak, in 2019 when she testified during President Donald Trump's first impeachment hearing. She joins us on Target USA to talk about her new book, which, yes, addresses that day. Fiona, you've written a magnificent book. It's called There's Nothing For You Here. Why did you write this book and where did the title come from? Well, the title of the book comes from something that my father said to me um, back in 1984 when I was leaving high school. This was a period in which there had been the massive closure of the mainstay industries of the region uh, that I'd been born in in the northeast of England, which was renowned from everything from coal mining to uh, steel manufacturing, shipbuilding. It was, you know, basically the equivalent of uh, any of the major mass manufacturing areas of the United States. And in the 1980s, under Margaret Thatcher, There was a revolution in British industry, the modernization of the industry, and also, you know, the downsizing of many of these old smokestack uh, commanding heights, uh, like industries that had been nationalized in the wake of World War II. And as I was going my way through uh, school, particularly through high school, every major industry in the locality seemed to close down the uh, railway works, the steel works, all of the coal mines had been closing down for the entire period that I had uh, 
being alive at this point, going back to the 1960s. My dad himself was a coal miner, lost his job repeatedly, was always, you know, looking for uh, something else. And in 1984, as I'm leaving school, there was just mass unemployment in my area. And uh, absolute disaster for school leavers. So people like myself leaving school from my region in particular in 1984 had very little expectation of something else to go on to. In fact, only 10% of school leavers in 1984 had something else lined up, either going to university, college, or some kind of apprenticeship. 90% were still looking for something to do once they'd left. My father basically said to me in the kind of uh, you know local dialect, there's nothing for you here, pet. You know, if you want to do something else, if you want to make something of yourself, you've got to go somewhere else. And he said, you know, out of the um, out of the region in the northeast of England, maybe to London, maybe to Europe or to the United States, which for him had always been a dream of moving off to the United States in mm-hmm. his view, the land of opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I wrote the book, you know, with this obviously in mind, but really against the backdrop of my experience back in 2019, which many people will remember as being a witness in the first impeachment trial of the president of Donald Trump. That's what I want to get into. Uh, I want to ask you a question about that, Um, but I don't want to interrupt your flow about why you wrote the book, but I do want to come back to that. I have some specific questions about that day and how it impacted us and the world and you, but please continue on your path to why you wrote this book. Well, it really came out of that whole idea that I'd had in coming to the United States I came as a graduate student, I mean, very different from, you know, a lot of other immigrants. I got a scholarship to Harvard University in 1989, an enormous opportunity for me. I mean, the subtitle of the book is Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century. This was me finding opportunity in the 20th century, you know, coming to the US in 1989. And I just had this remarkable strokes of good luck. You know, I worked very hard at school. My parents had really encouraged me. My father had really being deprived of an education. He'd left school at 14 to become a coal miner. My mother had had a slightly different experience, but she'd also you know, left school relatively early at 16, but gone straight into training to be a nurse and a midwife. And she'd really enjoyed you know, that work. But both of them really felt that education was an incredible door to open up all kinds of other life chances. And they were always pushing me towards every education opportunity I could get. And they pushed me towards studying languages and taking part in school exchanges. And although we came from a very poor background, my family had you know, no means whatsoever. There was ways of signing up for things and you know, finding grants. And my local government paid for a lot of things for poor kids uh, to get these opportunities and these experiences. And as a result of that, I'd amazingly got this scholarship at the end of, you know, kind of a long period of education to go to Harvard. And I arrived in the United States in 1989, just the Cold War was ending. I'd been studying Russian and I was in the United States at Harvard to do a, a degree in what was then Soviet studies and later a PhD in history. And I just, you know, really thought at that time that the United States was it. It was kind of a pinnacle of achievement and everything in the United States was in fantastic shape, particularly in comparison with my very deprived region in the United States and the Britain that was going under some turmoil. And clearly the object of my studies, the Soviet Union, that was on the verge of falling apart when I came. Uh, The Cold War was ending, Mikhail Gorbachev was in power. The Soviet Union was really on its last legs. And that was obvious for anyone who'd been there. And I just spent a year there from 1987 to 1988. And then progressively over time in the US, I was going to say that I suddenly realized that things 
were going awry in the US as well. And the culmination of it for me was that experience in that testimony in um, October and then November of 2019. And I felt I had to explain how we'd got to this point. You uh, walked into that room on November 21st, 2019. And for people who didn't know who you were, like me, who study and follow national security on a consistent basis, you blew the minds of the world. Those folks that don't follow you all the time and didn't know who you were. Because you exploded on the scene for those folks that day, speaking some truths that people in some cases were not prepared to hear. In other cases, they weren't aware of it. Uh, and you really open people's eyes in many places and cases. And I'm just wondering what you were thinking and feeling as you were sitting in that chair wearing the black that day. <laughs> I'll never forget it. You were sitting there and you said these words. Based on questions and statements I've heard, some of you on this committee appear to believe that Russia and its security services did not conduct a campaign against our country and that perhaps... Somehow, for some reason, Ukraine did. This is a fictional narrative that has been perpetrated and propagated by the Russian security services themselves. So I'm interested in what was going through your mind as you sat there that day. Well, you know, as I said, I started off in this odyssey and, you know, I was kind of talking about it at great length there because it was something of an odyssey. And somehow everything had worked together to bring me to that point. And, you know, I realized that even in the moment and certainly on the eve of it, you know, I looked back and I thought, how did I get here? You know, I had my hmm. um, family members and others, you know, saying to me on the eve of um, the, uh, you know, the whole events, how on earth did you end up in this situation? You know, and I obviously had reflected on that. And in that moment, you know, I thought to myself, I've just got to lay it all out there. I've got to explain to people what I saw and the importance of it. And I'm really frightened for this country at this moment. I wasn't concerned about myself. I was really concerned about how we had got to this situation, not just impeaching a president, which obviously is a, something of a rare event, but on, you know, at the, against the backdrop of acute polarization, political partisanship, where the people that I was actually giving testimony to were tearing themselves apart and fighting with each other over exactly this fictional narratives, making stuff up, you know, for their own private, personal, political gain and not thinking about the national security of the country. Mm -hmm. And my experience in the closed-door depositions that had preceded the public testimony had shocked me, actually. I mean, I really thought that, you know, most members of Congress, I mean, also all of them, I mean, you know, we see the spectacle in the kind of like the politics it plays out in the press, and I'd had plenty of exposure to members of Congress to see that you know, some people are always thinking about their own personal positions. But I thought that most people really did believe in the oath that they took not just to serve their constituents, but to the oath of the constitution. And I was watching all of this and thinking, well, lots of expletives, lots <laughs> of other kinds of things as well. Can this really be happening? And, you know, here I am in this spot, along with all the other people who'd come forward as fact witnesses. Maybe it was just up to us to lay it all out there. Well, you did. get people's attention. You did. You, know? you did do that. And you did it in such a way that, like I said, you blew people's minds that day. Because, first of all, you know, the majority of people didn't know who Fiona Hill was. Then there is this woman with this British accent who was an American, a very proud and very successful and productive American that we're, um, you know, the country is blessed to have you as a citizen who 
who was there talking about what took place and what was going on and talking about how we needed to, to deal with ourselves and our own blinders to this, this situation uh, that, had, that had arisen out of the Trump administration. You worked in that administration, and it wasn't a pleasant thing. Can you talk a bit about that? No, it was not. I mean, look, you know, I feel blessed and proud to be an American. Uh, as I said, it opened incredible doors to me and an amazing opportunity to come to this country. Many generations of my family had been focused on America as the beacon you know, of democracy, of opportunity, the country that had saved the day twice um, in the 21st century in great wars that family members had fought in, the First World War and the Second World War. I was so pleased and proud when I became an American citizen. I wanted to have the opportunity to serve the country. I was a kind of a policy wonk on Russia. And, you know, I was looking for ways in which I could have adapted that knowledge. In 2016, when the Russians decided to interfere in our election, I'd also previously served in the National Intelligence Council from 2006 to 2009. So I knew a thing or two about what the Russians were up to. In 2016, when they decided to interfere in the election and poured fuel on these parties under flames, I really felt I had to do something. So that opportunity again, when some you know people approached me to say, would I consider coming in? You know, it was a difficult decision given the politics around everything, but I thought, of course, I've got to do this. I've got to do something. But then when I get inside, this is what's the unpleasant aspect. It's not trying to serve your country, work on a clear mission to try to uphold national security along with, you know, I have to say I work with some really fantastic people, irrespective of their you know, political positions, whether they were uh, non-partisan detailees from across the US government or political appointees who were also very much trying to do the right thing to protect the country. It was seeing this privatization of the United States, the privatization of our foreign policy, and frankly, at times, the sheer incompetence and political games that were being played that was really unpleasant. I was deeply disappointed you know, by some of the actions that I saw taken. And of course, I mean, that all comes out in that moment in the testimony. But we really should not have got to that point. And you know, really, what was that all about? It was about the privatization of national security interests for somebody's personal gain. It wasn't at all about American national security. You know, one of the things that we learned as a result of that situation that played out that day as we continued to dig into and dive into uh, as as the press um, developments there is that um, there was a quite a bit of chaos inside 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 the White House. And, you know, I kind of experienced a bit of that myself one day Um when I visited there, invited to come there to see the press secretary in the early days of the administration. When I got there, I managed to get into the White House and unescorted and, you know, straight to his office. And he had no clue why I was there. (laughs) So, I mean, there was that chaos, but you lived it every day. And so tell us a bit about a day working there. And and I don't want to trivialize this. I want I want to hear your 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 story here, but I just want to hear a little bit more about what it was like on a daily basis in that in the Trump administration because you worked for other another president, President Obama, and I want to talk about that too. But I'm just trying to get a sense of what it was like working at this administration. 
Yeah, well, just to be clear, I actually worked for three presidents because I went from uh, George W. Bush to President Obama through that's, a kind of transition when I was at the National Intelligence Council. That's true. But this was, you know, different from both of these, let's just say. But I also have to say for, you know, people listening, there were lots of days when it's perfectly ordinary. The drama was not 24-7, uh, but there was plenty of it. And a lot of it was really driven by what was going on on television. So one thing, you know, in most of these settings, I mean, I'm sure people have seen plenty of this from, you know, TV programs or their own personal experiences, always TV screens, they're ubiquitous. Um, I mean, you work in the media, you know, so you know that people are constantly monitoring, you know, what's happening. But it's more, you know, just kind of keeping up with the flow of events. In this case, often this was pres prescribing what was going to go and happen on, um, you know, our, on our account on work. We would be driven by media things, by what the president was watching on television. And he was much more likely to be motivated by something he saw on TV than he was by something that was being brought to him, either by his intelligence or his policy advisors. And so that was the abnormal aspect of this. It was kind of, I kept thinking, and again, trying not to trivialize this, but of course, this is maybe seen like a you know, pretty trivial uh, analogy here. It was like Mike TV in uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, you know, Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory, the, you know, the whole novel by Roald Dahl, where, you know, you remember if anybody's seen the movie or read the book, yes. you know, Mike TV is only driven by television. And in the end, you know, he ends up <laughs> being dropped into a television uh, and as a result of, you know, kind of inadvertently, uh, you know, eating a uh, a forbidden, a forbidden candy in the in the chocolate factory, as you know, happens to many other people. I thought about that all the time. I thought this is crazy. This is like being in the land of Mike TV, mm. and everything that was happening. You know, we were always driven by what somebody was saying. A commentator. People wanted to get uh, President Trump's attention. They were more likely to appear on Fox News than they were to try to, you know, follow the normal procedures and processes <laughs> of sending in, you know, some kind of memorandum and, you know, having a proper process here. Yeah. You know, I've been sort of uh, trying to get you to talk to me about Chapter 10 without using the word, but I got to, you know, I guess I got, I'm going to have to do it. Either that one of us is going to have to say it. But what I've been trying to get you to talk about here is your situation there and something that I've found highly, highly inappropriate, disrespectful um, for you and for any woman. But chapter 10 is really important. So that's what I'm trying to get at here. Talk a little bit about that, <laughs> yeah. if you would. Right. So the title of that chapter, the, the one that you don't want to talk about, is Russia Bitch. And uh, you know, as I learned later, this was a moniker, a nickname that was given to me by Rents Priebus, the uh, former uh, chief of staff uh, to President Trump. I was unaware of this you know, at the time, but really... It was unfortunately emblematic of, of the high levels of misogyny that were right there. And, you know, it's obviously something that one experiences in other settings as well as a woman, you know, particularly a woman in a field that, you know, used to be more the purview of, of men or, you know, if any actual, you know, minority who was kind of broken into a field. I mean, at this point, you know, I'm in my uh, mid 50s. There are a lot of women in national security, but when I started off, that was not the case. And it's you know still the case that the um, the people at the very top, the older, more senior people, you know, tend to be men. But a lot of women, you know, coming up, particularly women of my age group, my generation, and we can name uh, uh -huh. a large number of those. But it was really, you know, kind of a basic nickname to sort of marginalise me because people didn't really kind of care 
about the expertise and you know the expert advice again putting it in that concept of the sort of mike tv image you know we've got a commentator on television who had you know no background whatsoever was saying something that was kind of more worthwhile of the president's attention than anybody who was kind of coming up uh into his office you know with a lot of uh material information for him you know he wanted his information in sound bites and he wanted it to kind of like fit the image and you know he was not really particularly interested in people who purported to have uh deep knowledge of Russia or Vladimir Putin he was more interested himself of just sort of getting on with everything and so my uh, even presence of being there as the, the sort of Russia expert um even though I'd been brought in by the people who were close associates um, of the president with the hope that I'd be able to talk to him about Putin and talk to him about Russia became somewhat irrelevant and that whole chapter talks about that whole series of episodes of trying to get president trump's attention to be able to get information out to him about you know the kind of nature of the problems that were posed by vladimir putin and the russian security services but also he himself found it very difficult to think about this because what had happened in 2016 with the russian intervention cast of course an enormous shadow over his presidency he didn't want to admit that the russians had done anything to interfere in the elections because that would have been tantamount to saying hey you know they were trying to sway the election in my favor therefore i didn't really win i'm illegitimate and he couldn't really handle the thought that that might be a possibility and he couldn't also look past his own personal uh position in this to think about the massive attack on us democracy that the russians have perpetrated in 2016 because as course as we learned later he wasn't particularly interested in american democracy himself he was himself already thinking about how he could be ensconced in power indefinitely and in many respects you know they also lay out in uh, this and some of the other chapters of the book he was aping and emulating many of the things that vladimir putin was doing in russia whether it was consciously or unconsciously mm. you know i'm not suggesting that he was in cahoots with putin but just that an awful lot of the style the approaches yeah and some of the goals were very very similar you in know, terms of staying in power and you know pushing the united states in a very different path yeah putin and trump were more alike than say trump and bush and certainly trump and 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 president obama you yeah. know putin was more the kind of political model for him than you know any other previous american president Yeah, that's what I wanted to talk to you about next. Um the working for presidents Bush and Obama. Can you give us a sense of what it was like? Well, in those cases, I wasn't in this same position. I was the national intelligence officer, you know, my job was to provide you know, analytical briefings on, you know, very specific issues that I get called in. This wasn't you know, I wasn't in the White House itself in the National Security uh Council. the national intelligence council um, was physically located out in the um CIA headquarters in Langley you know so we'd be bussed or driven in uh, to give um uh, briefings and you know the briefings that I did do for both of those presidents they were extraordinarily attentive and these were very detailed they both had different styles president bush uh was much more interested in the kind of a give and take you know, you'd say something he'd immediately dive in there and uh, ask lots of questions um he wasn't so much interested in sort of reading everything and then asking a question but having a kind of a give and take and sometimes they'd go on for an extraordinary amount of time beyond the time that had been allotted 
for the kind of the briefing, the whole so-called deep dive on a um, particular issue. And he was you know, genuinely interested and pretty well informed. President Obama, as you know, one might expect, knowing um, you know, as much as we do about him as well and his you know, propensity for writing huge books that lay out um, everything you know, from his life and his you know, political philosophy, he was a reader. You know, he read um, all of the materials that were prepared for him and then that would ask a judicious question. Perhaps that's also indicative of his law school training. So, you know, different approach from President Bush, but um, President Bush was also you know, deeply informed and very curious and, you know, kind of full of questions. President Trump, not so much. Yeah, we gathered that. You've had some very interesting experiences that have brought you to where you are in your life. One of the things that caught my attention when I was reading the book uh, and I'm not trying to trivialize or make this a focal point. I'm just trying to add some texture to your rise throughout your career. You talk at one point in this book about uh, you, when you were during your education, you mentioned the word busted twice in this book. <laughs> and there's one where you mentioned getting busted playing hearts on a computer rather than writing. And um, there's another one. We can talk about that, maybe not, but this one where you got busted playing hearts, I thought it was absolutely ridiculous that that happened, but I think it's also a, a testament to who Fiona Hill turned out to be. You have to be careful what you do and say to people because you never know when you're talking to royalty, and clearly they didn't know who they were talking to, who they would be, to, who you would be later. So you got busted playing hearts. Tell us that story. Well, it's actually got a you know kind of a, a a great context to it because this was the period when I was trying to finish off my PhD dissertation, and it had actually been you know quite difficult to get to that point because of not having any you know personal resources. I always had to rely on a grant um, or a fellowship or working you know my way through. I mean, like many people have put themselves through college or any kind of qualification you know a lot of people have had to work and work really hard you know to do that and you know you're burning the candle at all ends and when I was doing my um, PhD dissertation I was working for Professor Graham Allison at the Kennedy School pretty famous person many people listen to this may have heard of him he wrote a very famous political science book the essence of decision about the Cuban Missile Crisis and has a new book you know relatively recently about the you know the risks of us getting into a confrontation with China the Thucydides trap and Graham um, was, you know, my boss in this period. And, you know, he knew I was having a lot of difficulties and thinking I was going to finish my PhD. And he um, basically gave me a kind of a an ultimatum, which was also ultimately a way of trying to help me and said, look, he would give me a three month leave unpaid from the position I was in. And I should try to finish it, write the whole thing there and then. But if I didn't, you know, good luck in coming back to work. And he would ask a few people to check up on me <laughs> to see that I was actually, you know, working on my PhD because he, you know, he kind of went out on a limb and got in touch with one of the local Harvard um, libraries. There's lots of libraries at Harvard and asked him if he could give me like a little room or a cubicle to kind of work in and put a computer in there, you know, so I could get something done, which was pretty generous of him. But then he would like to send to other people to tell them to you just check up and see how I was doing. Well, one person I didn't really know very well snuck around one afternoon, obviously taking this a little bit too much to extremes, <laughs> walked in through the window of the thing. So I had 
probably the mistake of, you know, sitting with my back to the door. And I was playing hearts on the computer because I was procrastinating, oh like we all gosh. do. You. Technically, it was my lunchtime. Anyway, they went back and reported, a bit like, you know, the security services back to Graham. And next thing I get this blistering phone call at home from Graham. <laughs> I've heard that you're not, you know, working on your PhD dissertation and you were playing hearts and you'll never finish like this. And I was like, what? What? <laughs> it's kind of a... So... <laughs> I felt, you know, actually, you know, personally affronted. I thought, who was spying on me, you know, for one thing. But then, of course, it also gave me the spur of, oh, my God, I'd better finish, which I did. And I actually managed to finish in the time in which uh, he'd given it to me. But, Thank yeah, I was, I was bested. But I also thought, what was this person doing? <laughs> kind of skulking around, <laughs> looking through the, you know, the windows to check up on me like yeah. that. I don't think that's what he had in mind when he said, go and find out how she's getting off. <laughs> well, thank God you did get busted because you went on to become, uh, I think, what I think is a great American. But, you know, so this is, I, I wanted that to happen, to talk about that so folks know that Fiona Hill is a, is a multi-layered, multi-textured person. And funny is a part of this narrative. I can tell you also, I learned through that process, because, I mean, hopefully Graham's not listening to this, that every lunch break I'd pay hearts, and I, I learned you can beat the computer at hearts if well, you get a low hand. So there so you go. Anyway, just, 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 uh, there you go, you see? Not, not only is she <laughs> funny, but she's wicked smart. She knows how to beat a computer playing hearts. So there you go. You know, um, and part of the reason why I wanted to talk about that was that was in this Chapter 7 about women's work. And you wrote in the very beginning of that chapter, after a while, I factored in the indignities of being a woman in Russia as a part of the package. Another endurance test, but also a source of uh, illuminating experience. So just uh, unpack a little bit of that uh, experience for, for us, um, what you learned from that. Well, in the case of Russia in the 1990s, it became a real change from the Soviet period. I'd first gone to Russia in the late Soviet Union. And there were quotas for women in, you know, high-level positions. There were lots of women in the, you know, the equivalent of the Russian and Soviet Parliament. You know, there have been um, women in space, women here, women there. You know, women, you know, um, in very high-level positions. Suddenly, in the 1990s, that just all changed. As soon as the quotas disappeared, and you know, this is obviously probably something that people might <laughs> think about more broadly, uh, in a way that we've, the ways that we've really changed over time. It was like, you know, women had disappeared as if they'd never been there in many of these positions. And instead, there became, you know, a lot of focus on women as objects. The 1990s was yeah. a whole um, period of massive change. There was a lot of, you know, real disregarding of women. And, and frankly, you know, a lot of people who were in Russia in this time, they remember the idea of a sort of a young woman appearing in a hotel or, you know, in any professional setting you know, you were either a prostitute if you were there in a hotel coming through the door, you know, kind of dressed in, you know, um, any kind of suit or dress or anything like this. And, you know, in any other meeting, you're either the translator or the secretary, um, or maybe you were there to make tea. Mm. You know, there wasn't any kind of expectation you were there in any kind of role. And I lay out in that um, a chapter some of the, you know, the things that happened there. And, you know, I tried to make some of these humorous, but they were anything but humorous. And there were many, many other episodes that I could have done, but the, in fact, the editor eventually said, okay, okay, we get the point. Let's <laughs> uh, kind of reduce well, some of these down. Yeah, because I've know. had some absurd you know, situations. Like, you know, I, I told initially a story that ended up on the cutting room floor about myself and my fellow very senior um, Russian professional, Angela Stent, Professor Angela Stent from Georgetown, who's yes. just retired 
and who succeeded me as the national intelligence officer and how we'd kind of show up at conferences together to find ourselves pretty much the only women. And, you know, there would be no women's bathroom. We'd be left outside buildings. People would forget about us. Mm. We once had to go and pee in a park opposite an official um, Russian um, uh, building because there was no women's bathroom and they wouldn't let us in. And we literally were told to go over and, you know, find the public toilet in the park, which was locked. You know, we were chased by a pack of dogs and, you know, we were basically saying to ourselves, this is ridiculous. I mean, you know, you're asking, you know, two professional women, especially Angela Stent, who was, you know, seen it to me to go and pee in a park and literally behind the building with a pack of dogs chasing us. Um, So this was just, you know, one of many stories of, you know, you had to kind of factor in that, you know, the men just never experienced. And, Many times people would even forget you were there as a woman. They'd talk past you. And this became actually extremely useful later because Andrew and I and many others would pick up all this interesting information because the men would, particularly the Russian men, would forget we were there, forget we spoke Russian, and just chat among themselves. And we'd be like, oh, that's interesting. They shouldn't be telling us this, but they just don't realize they are because we're just part of the scenery. Yeah. What year was that? Or years were they? Oh, this was in the 1990s. Mm. And I mean, I think, you know, in the 2000s, things somewhat started to change. There's all the very, you know, kind of well-regarded yeah. professional women, particularly in the financial sector. Yeah. The central bank, um, you know, woman is a head. But uh, the, the head of the central bank is a woman, uh, for example. Yeah. It's about the strange way formulation there. But, um, you know, things I, I would say that, you know, for many of them, with the sexism and some of the misogyny yeah. hasn't really gone away. But they are more professional women now over time, just as, you know, things have evolved and changed here too. Yeah. Speaking of evolving and changing, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, how you grew up and your education and your working, you know, in the uh, national security space. But, you know, you left that space and you've had some interesting opportunities and scenarios since you left that space. So maybe you can talk a little bit about where you are now in your life. Well, I would say that you know, this experience um, that prompted me to write the book and then the experience of writing the book as well has really made me think long and hard about, you know, where we are um, as a country right now. The polarisation of society, not just of our politics. You know, where I started off was the idea that I had come to the land of opportunity, but realising that for actually many of the people who were born just as I was arriving here in 1989, the United States was no longer the uh, land of opportunity. Grants for education disappeared. Now, educational attainment is a marker of class, as well as a kind of a mark of how you will vote or how you regard yourself. There's a huge gulf between people who've had two or four year education or any kind of further and higher education and those who have not. There are many parts of our society who feel that education is not for them, which is to me preposterous because education is for everybody. And we've been tearing ourselves apart uh, politically uh, for, you know, best part of uh, a decade, certainly since the Great Recession of 2008, 2009. And, you know, through this populist politics that's emerged, um, you know, all the terrible um, developments of COVID and the impact that that has had in exacerbating many of the the weaknesses that have been revealed in, um, in our society, public health and many other structures. And it's really made me feel that, you know, I'm at that kind of stage in my life that many people listening to this might be where, you know, I'd be 56 my next birthday. Maybe it's time to do something different and to try to sort of step up and try to do something about all of this. 
I mean, I realized from my own life and you know, from the process of writing this book, we've all got individual agency. And people have been very much fixated on who's in the White House and whether that's really going to sort of change things. But there's an awful lot that all of us can do at the local and community level to change things and to try to create opportunity for others and to try to help out in ways in which we can ameliorate the situation that we're in. And I mean, I really do firmly believe now that the way that we'll change politics will not be at the top or just at the top, but it's going to be from all of us mobilizing and kind of thinking about the America that we want to live in, starting at our own community. And, you know, local um, radio, local media plays an enormous role in this as well, JJ. I mean, the kinds of things that you do, you know, with your podcasts, the information uh, that WTOP you know, gets out there for you know, our broader community, this is where it all begins. I think this death of local newspapers, of, of local media, because of uh, the influence of the internet and advertising and lack of revenues, has really had a very negative impact on our societal cohesion. And so, you know, I'm thinking now, you know, as I know many other people are about their futures, about doing things differently. Lots of people have dropped out of the, the workforce or the jobs they did before the pandemic and are all kind of thinking about, well, what can I do now? And that's really kind of the phase that I'm in. And I'm hoping that, you know, as a course of starting off a series of discussions about some of the points that I raise in this book, that I and others, you know, can find a way of doing something concrete to try to address this situation. You know, I'm not naive enough to think that, wow, well, you know, if we all kind of pull together, we can fix this overnight. This isn't going to happen. It's going to be sort of a generation plus uh, effort here. But I think there's things that we can do. And I do at the end of the book lay out just some basic suggestions for you know ordinary people to sort of think about, well, what could I do about this? We all have agency. And I hope that you know the story that I tell in the book gives people um, some sense of that because I'm an ordinary person. You know, my dad was a coal miner, as we said, you know, he left school at 14, went down the mines. My mom became a nurse and a midwife. You know, she did you know an awful lot of things, delivering babies to, you know, make an improvement in her community. And I got to where I was because a lot of people helped me. There was mentorship, there was um, grants, there was all kinds of fellowships that I got, and there was opportunities that were opened up through education. And it doesn't have to be an elite education or graduate school at Harvard. Uh, We have fantastic educational establishments around here in um, the broader DC area, places like Montgomery College, you know, places uh, that offer all kinds of further education for people, new skills acquisition, there's lots of different ways in which people can find the knowledge and the opportunities to move themselves ahead and to help their communities. Well, you know, um, I have two more questions that I want to ask you, and um, I want to make sure that it's highlighted that um, you have done uh, quite a bit of exceptional work uh, with this book uh, in capturing so many different themes and uh, you've done it as you've continued to uh, make some significant contributions to how we think about where we are and what we do about it, um, you know, at the Brookings Institution, and hats off to them for recognizing that. But before we, before we end this, this interview, I do need to ask you about your thoughts about where we are today. The U.S. The US government and NATO, Afghanistan, I mean, there are some issues and problems there. As of uh, today, the 16th of September, uh, 2021, um, there there is some umbrage that's been taken in Europe to the to the new AUKUS, 
uh, situation, the U.S., U.K., and Australia. And I'm just not quite sure where this ends, how the U.S. writes itself, or if it's even off kilter, uh, and continues to work with its partners and press on ahead towards a safe and, um, I guess, productive world uh, after reeling from the years of the Trump administration, basically, and 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 get this thing right. So what what's, what's your view on where the U.S. is right now? Well, we're obviously in a pretty difficult place. I mean, you summed it up pretty um, clearly there. Um, you know, there are so many different layers to this. And, you know, in the book, I'm talking about some of the substrata, you know, because it's that polarization and that lack of our ability to, you know, really get toward collective action that then also bleeds into foreign policy. We're not very good at communicating, you know, even with some of our closest allies. You know, I mean, we don't, um, you know, keep them informed of things that we're thinking. You know, we don't um, often have the forum, um, uh, the correct forums for having these kinds of discussions. I mean, I saw that when I was at the National Security Council. You know, sometimes our national security advisors and others would be kind of keen on a format in which they would engage. Then the next, um, you know, person would come along, a group would come along and they'd jettison that. And there was no sort of continuity of engagement. Um, you know, with our counterparts, a lot of the backlash that we're getting from Europeans and others uh, on Afghanistan elsewhere is just the, the, the breakdown of the process of consultation. In part, that's the fact of uh, changing governments and changing administrations and not getting people in place. But it's also because we've got out of the practice of talking to ourselves. You know, we're always arguing about things. Everything is a political point. You know, the current um, situation, and it's happened in previous administrations where members of Congress or the Senate will hold up all of the presidential appointments you know, to critical positions, even some of those that are you know, absolutely essential for the proper functioning of our foreign policy in our state on a political point, uh, you know, instead of really kind of thinking about the broader national interest. And we're not going to get out of this predicament until we get back to the idea that we're all Americans. It doesn't matter whether you're red or blue or you know, how you define yourself. I, I find it actually, to be honest, deeply disturbing that all the polling shows that the most important identification for a person in America these days is a political one, whether they consider themselves a Republican or a Democrat. How did we get to that? I mean, that, when I arrived in 1989, I didn't know whether people were Democrats or Republicans. People were Americans. And yes, they had different views and different opinions. And, you know, they might have identified themselves racially or along ethnic lines or religious lines, but there was a complex of identities. If we're splitting ourselves up into red versus blue and then everybody else who doesn't fit into that, you know, is not part of a conversation, you know, we're, we're losing perspective here. So we only get back to being ourselves again and get collective action when we remember the red, white and blue and the white is you know, everything and everybody else in the middle. We have to have a national conversation, having programs like this, starting, you know, kind of discussions in a public way and as many for as possible as part of that. But we also have to address, you know, some of the real fundamental issues, many of which I lay out in the book. And, you know, as you pointed out, a lot of this is reflecting work that's going on uh, the level of my colleagues at the Brookings Institution. We're looking at all of the kind of political, social and economic issues that are the most contentious and most difficult in the United States uh, today, as well as other universities and think tanks and elsewhere. We've got, a, we've got a big job here to address all of that, but we have to do it all together. There's not one thing that's going to fix things, but certainly having a dialogue where we all remember 
that we're part of the same fabric of the same country and the same society is going to be pretty essential. I would just sort of say to people, you've got to put this red, white and blue stuff away here. I remember the inner American, you know, why are you here? I mean, I chose to come here. I've been you're so grateful every time that of this opportunity to come to the United States to be an American citizen. People need to remember that they're Americans and that we're brought together by that fact. This is, you know, a shared polity and we need to fix it together because, you know, if we're tearing it apart, we're just going to be tearing ourselves apart as well. Well, Fiona, my final question, true to form, you are so intuitive, you've answered it, but I'm going to give you the opportunity to do it another way if you want to. If you don't, we're good with this, but you write in your book, in the prologue, I cover a lot of ground in this book and a great many interrelated topics. But there's one message that I hope to convey more forcefully than any other. So would you tell us what that message is? Well, in part, it's the idea of the book of opportunity. Because we have an opportunity crisis here in the United States. And many of the people who divide themselves up politically, they do so because they feel that they are denied an opportunity, an opportunity to be themselves, an opportunity for a job, an opportunity for an education, or an opportunity to uh, put forward uh, their opinion. And we have to uh, basically tackle that crisis of opportunity head on because it's that lack of opportunity, that crisis of opportunity, uh, people's kind of perceptions of the grievance that people are feeding on uh, in the political sphere or outside um, our you know, adversaries to exploit and to turn against us. So the whole point is that opportunity comes from all kinds of different uh, sources that are laid out in the book. And we can all do something to tackle that crisis. I was very struck when uh, President Biden had his inaugural speech, I didn't expect this, and I you know, was already you know, very close to finishing the first drafts of the book, that he talked about the universal values that people hold the highest in the United States, and the number one of that was opportunity. So you know, I'm obviously not the only person who's noticing this. We have a massive opportunity crisis. We have to address this, and we can all address it together. And uh, as I said, at the end of the book, I've got a few just you know, very basic ideas that people could take away with themselves and think I could do that. Some of my opportunities come from just people telling me, hey, there's a scholarship you could apply for. Or I had an opportunity to, you know, do something new, but I didn't have a suit. I have, you know, a, a, a professor at um at, at Harvard, Dorothy Zinberg, went out and bought me a suit. You can, you know, give people an opportunity in all kinds of uh, different ways. And that's uh, really the message that I wanted uh, people to take away from the book, but we can all do it together. And we have the opportunity to fix this together. Well, that's brilliant. You've done it in this book. If only people will listen. But, you know, I'm thinking that there will be more opportunities for them to see you in government service or just see you in general. You may not uh, appear in government service, who knows? But what I do know, folks, is you should keep your eyes out for Fiona Hill because she's got a lot to do, a lot to offer, and a lot of energy, clearly. So um, I'm thankful to you, Fiona, for, for doing this. Thank you for writing the book. Thank you for including us in the process. And thank you for today. Thanks so much, JJ. It's really been a great pleasure talking to you today. Thanks so much. That's it for this episode. Coming up in our next episode, a special event. 
COVID vaccines, a secret disinformation campaign. They wanted me to share wrong information about Pfizer. It started online, but flyers ended up on doorsteps. It said it causes sterility. Traced back to Russian intelligence. Russian agents working on U.S. soil. Millions of Americans gobbled it up, a nightmare for U.S. healthcare officials. Time-consuming and exhausting. I'm J.J. Green. Join me for the COVID Conspiracy Crossover event, a joint presentation of the Target USA podcast and the Colors podcast, featuring the National Football League Players Association, Dr. Anthony Fauci, former FBI and CIA personnel, social media influencers, COVID Conspiracy. We connect the dots between foreign disinformation campaigns and Americans' refusal to get COVID-19 vaccines. If you have any questions or comments about Target USA, send me an email. You can reach me at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, one word, at whiskeytangooscarpapa.com. jgreen at wtop.com. Also, please subscribe to our podcast. And we'd like as well if you'd follow us on Twitter. We're at T-U-S-A podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha podcast. Also, if you want more national security information, you can sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at WTOP.com slash email. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Hey guys, Jay Cutler. Started a new podcast called Uncut with Jay Cutler. Most of you know me from the NFL, some of you have seen me on Instagram, and some of you know me from the reality TV world. Each week I'm taking you along with me as we discuss football, trending topics, and whatever's going on in my life each week. I'm bringing along people that are special in my life, former teammates, friends, and some new people that I like and respect. That's what you're supposed to do, right? Podcasting? I think I'm doing this right. Can't wait to get started with you. Go subscribe now. Uncut with Jay Cutler, Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, and Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.